The Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. The Gospel of John, penned from Ephesus around AD 65, was written to believers living in the last days. Set in this tumultuous time, it has a context not too dissimilar from our own. Read from the perspective of its initial audience, it reveals lessons for those living in the last days, a group that we believe ourselves to be part of. By taking this approach to our Lord's cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2, we are persuaded in the shadow of the Lord coming suddenly to his temple, that how we treat our Father's house is of particular importance. For John's hearers, this incident is at once a warning and an appeal. A warning to those who, like the Jews, would treat the Father's house as a place of merchandise, of personal gain, a place to sit down and take. And an appeal that now, more than ever, there is a need to imitate the Son of God and be compelled by the zeal of God to protect an environment when Yahweh's name is alive. To better appreciate the re relevance of the warning and the appeal, we need to look deeper at the setting of John's Gospel. In AD 65, from a purely political standpoint, the insecurity of Emperor Nero was growing publicly evident. He was now 11 years into his reign and about 28 years of age. A few years prior, he had murdered his mother and the royal advisers associated with her. It was at this time that the Christians were starting to become Nero's scapegoat. Secular history tells us that Nero's reign up to this point was one of Lages. Soon the empire would decline, but at this stage there was a relatively peace in the Mediterranean. Entertainment was a religion, and the rich were getting richer. From an ecclesial viewpoint, these political pressures, combined with a strong delusion, were germinating the seeds of the apostasy especially among the influential elders of the Ephesian Ecclesia, the same Ephesian Ecclesia where John was writing his Gospel. We find a description of this growing movement in 2 Timothy chapter 3, a part of the letter written 18 to 24 months after the Gospel of John. Reading the first few verses, the emphasis on shall reminds us that around the time of this letter to Timothy and the Gospel of John, the, apost the apostasy was arising. However, as verses 2 to 9 describe, error was soon going to bring about a widespread attitude of evil to the surface. Men would have scant regard for others, but unbridled preoccupation with self. They would be lovers of their own selves, without natural affection, and lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. The days would come when error would seep through into practice, especially in a way that would leave other brothers and sisters poorly treated. It is in this context that the Ecclesia would read John's record of Jesus cleansing the temple. With the predicted falling away being in its initial stages and not yet widespread, there was an opportunity for the Ecclesia world to make the necessary changes to prevent that apostasy developing. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the Ecclesia at that time, it would be hard to miss the warning and the appeal hidden behind the text of our Lord's first cleansing of the temple. John records that upon entering his father's house, our Lord found those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money. With his quick understanding as the Son of God, he saw through the sham, even though many who were witnessing the same scene probably passed it off as a place of spiritual activity. In fact, what greeted Jesus could arguably have been justified from the law. The selling of animals from doves to oxen 
the breadth of the sacrificial code, was predominantly for those that had travelled from across the Roman Empire. Either they lived in a city and didn't keep animals, or they couldn't bring their animals on the arduous journey to Jerusalem. In these cases, they would bring money and buy unblemished animals to offer once they arrived in Jerusalem. This was more than a good idea. It was a provision made under the law. Similarly, the tables for changing money were based on a principle not without merit. The rationale was that at the mon as the money of the day had the image of Caesar on it, it would be against the sanctity of the temple to have it received as part of the temple tax. Installed stations around the edge of the temple precinct were there to exchange common currency for accepted currency. What is the issue then? There were two, and they related to the callous way in which these principles were carried out, especially towards the weak and needy, to him that hath no helper. Firstly, when Herod doubled the size of the Temple Mount complex, he added above the southern wall of the Temple Mount a huge colonnaded structure called the Royal Stoa. This was originally an edifice that served as a sacred marketplace. Normally the changing of money and buying of sacrificial animals took place in this building. During the high holidays, such as Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, the family of Annas would take advantage of their status and of the large crowds and move the buying and selling activities into the temple proper. Mark's record of Jesus cleansing the temple the second time seems to imply this, where it says that he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. This infers that the attending crowds were carrying their goods through the temple courts when they were supposed to be worshipping God in the beauty of holiness. Secondly, the family of Annas had a monopoly on this trade, especially the exchange of money. The raids were exorbitant, in fact, extortionate. History records that at one time, the priests were forced by local public outcry to reduce the rates that they were charging for the doves, the sacrifices used by the poor. To make it affordable, they had to drop the rate by 99%. No wonder, in Matthew's record of Jesus cleansing the temple the second time, it is noted that after this event, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. The blind and the lame being part of the population most affected by this den of thieves. While the Jews may justify their uncaring practice with biblical principles, the scene that our Lord witnessed could not have been further from godliness. Here was a place, crafted to their covetousness, and so not a haven for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. Imagine the scene from the perspective of a visiting proselyte, someone restricted to the court of the Gentiles. Coming from either far or near, the journey to Jerusalem for Passover would be a serious undertaking. They most likely couldn't afford to bring the whole family with them, and leaving them behind would have involved a certain amount of trepidation. Passage by boat may have to be organised, perils of robbers may have to be avoided, and travelling in groups was recommended. Arriving in Jerusalem was like attending a Bible school, but with millions of other people arriving. For some, a welcome sight, for others, another stress to deal with. Among the crowds, there would quickly be a sense of arrogance wherever a Jew by birth saw them. No doubt they would be a derision in an anti-Semitic world, but they may not have expected it from such obviously pious people. All would be forgotten though as they approached the temple and its magnificence, its wonder would have been seen as a sign of the God of Israel's approval. After passing by the temple guard, they would enter the gate underneath the temple walls, and walking under almost twenty metres of stone wall, they would have felt the noise of the city melt away, and be left with a growing sense of tranquillity. 
However, as they slowly ascended the next flight of stairs, the noise would return, a noise of bullocks lowing, of sheep grunting, of doves cooing, and of the traders seeking business. From the south of the temple area, they would travel up a long flight of stairs. As this was the most popular entrance, it would often take an hour to traverse them. Beside the, the gates and the lining of the steps would be beggars, people who were both blind and lame, crying for help from the fervent throng and receiving little. The noise would intensify with each ascending step until it came to its climax when they reached the court of the Gentiles, the only part of the temple that they had been explicitly told that they were welcome in. In addition to that noise, what greeted them was a sea of stalls, filling every space within the court. Stalls of money changers, pens of animals, cages of doves. There was hardly room to move, let alone find a quiet place to pray. And Jesus came to Jerusalem at the time of Yahweh's Passover, and found it an unholy place. Instead of a house of prayer for all nations, it was a noisy Jewish bazaar. And John writing in the face of the imminent apostasy, is unique in including two details that highlight our Lord's intense protection of the weak in this incident. A powerful reminder to first-century believers on the brink of ecclesial crisis, during which grievous wolves would not spare the flock. The first detail that we see is in John chapter 2 and verse 16, where we notice that Jesus especially directed his rebuke to those that sold doves, which only John records for this event. Leviticus 5 verse 7 points out that the doves or pigeons were the sacrificial animals reserved for the poor. It is specifically to those who were hardened to the plight of the poor that he reserved his stinging rebuke. The second unique detail is found in John 2 and verse 17, where John documents the scriptural passage that this incident triggered in the minds of his disciples. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. This is quoted from Psalm 69 verse 9, and it describes the confronting behaviour that would be seen in Christ. However, to appreciate why John retrospectively adds this detail, we should turn to Paul's use of the second half of this verse in Romans 15 verse 3. And the context of Romans 15 includes an encouragement in verse 1 that we then, that are strong, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. The wider context is the appeal of Romans 14, where Paul is urging the Roman ecclesia to have a community-minded reaction to the gospel in response to the Lord's death and resurrection. By quoting the second half of Psalm 69 and verse 9, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me, Paul is indirectly explaining the motivation of Christ's zeal in John chapter 2, verse 16. His zeal wasn't to please himself. It wasn't to force change based on his own personal feeling. He was responding to his father's cares. He was acting like his father, to support the wavering conscience of the feeble. And in doing this, he knew his actions would bring reproach. In the words of Psalm 69 verse 8, this would result in him becoming a stranger unto his brethren and an alien unto his mother's children. It was his father's business that energised him, rather than the things that related to his mother. So, we come each week to the table of our Lord, where both classes meet together, as Paul reveals in 1 Corinthians 11. There are the haves, who are well satiated to the point of being drunken, and the have-nots who are left the meeting hungry. Those are the category that could only afford doves, the ones that Yahweh especially cared for, the feeble folk. To us, living in the last days, days 
full of turmoil and challenge. The picture of the Lord casting out those that sold doves is at once a powerful warning and appeal. Now more than ever there is need for individuals to be compelled with the zeal of God to lift and not crush the stranger, the fatherless and the widows, to protect an ecclesial environment where Yahweh's name will live. So may we each examine ourselves and tarry or look out for one another because it is the Lord's Supper that unites us and not our own. <laughs>